We're going to worship and continue to worship through the reading of the Word. We believe that we sing praises and confess sins and are forgiven, and we speak to God. And we also believe that a part of worship is God speaks to us, that He is not silent, that the same Spirit who inspired the living Word is alive and active and is empowering us today as we listen and as we read. So I want to welcome you. One quick announcement. Um, You'll notice sermon discussion questions that are in your bulletin. These are meant for you over your tables, in your growth groups, in your own time with the Lord to uh, let the Spirit continue to work upon your heart. And so I'd ask that you would just take these home and, and get in a growth group, connect with people, and, and work through these questions. Maybe your spouses, your children, but it's a discipleship tool that we hope uh, will be a blessing to you. We're in Mark chapter 1, and we'll read uh, verses 16 through 34. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and the man cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew of James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we turn to your word. Your word is living and active, inspired and breathing. That it is profitable for teaching, correcting, humbling, encouraging, challenging, shaping, and conforming us to the image of your son. Father, I pray that you would uh, work through your servant. Forgive me my sins. May you bless the work of my hands. And may my words be yours. And may they fall upon anxious hearts that are anxious not to hear from a man, but to hear from their God and King. Do this, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. So, um... Missionaries, as they go overseas, um, many of them are now getting what we would call a crash course on cultural competence. In other words, as missionaries sort of get ready to go into a new part of the world, that what agencies have discovered is that they need to be prepared in advance. Because in one sense, they're going to a new kingdom. There's a new government. There's new geography. There's new currency, there's a new language, there's new food, there are new cultural things that you can do and shouldn't do. And what we've learned is that, hey, man, you have to take the time to give these people a crash course before they go over into a foreign kingdom. If not, it can be disastrous, right? If you stare at the man with the AK-47 long enough and go walk up to him, you might get shot, right, in a foreign land. That getting trained before you go into a foreign land, you'll learn that, hey, if you want to stay healthy on the trip, 
you might not need to drink their water because your stomach cannot handle their water, right? If you want to make it on time to your dinner appointment, you might want to think about saying yes to having coffee in Ethiopia, right? My wife and I went a few years ago, and we were offered coffee. And here's what's going through my mind. Somebody's going to go grind some beans, and somebody's going to push a button, and this machine's going to make us coffee, and we're going to sit down and pour a cup of coffee and sit there, and 30 minutes, we're out, right? 30 minutes tops. And nobody warned me that this woman brought out beans, but they were still green. And so she brought the beans out, and she brought this elaborate setup up, and she brought charcoal out and, and lit the charcoal, and then she went and got a pan and put the green beans in it, and she put the green beans in the pan on top of the charcoal fire, and she roasted the beans, like, right in front of me after she washed them. And so I'm thinking, like, man, we're going to be here a while, right? <laughs> so then she, once she roasts them, she kind of does this and, and lets you smell the aroma. I'm like, man, I just kind of want some coffee, right? <laughs> so then she gets a pestle and mortar, and she takes out this thing, and she grinds all the beans, and that's like another 30 minutes to get it in like a fine powder. And then she gets out this pot that, that looks like this, right? Right here. We got this from Ethiopia. And she puts, the, she puts water in it, and she puts that pot on that charcoal, and then she puts her coffee ground that was green a minute ago that's now roasted in there, and that sits there for a while, and it just, it brews right inside of here, and she gets it, and she shakes it. She wants the beans to drop to the bottom, and then it's time to drink coffee, and don't think you're getting coffee in your big Yeti cups. That's not it. Your coffee will be served in this, right? <laughs> this right here. Really? And so you get that servant and don't think it's over, right? How about do that two more times? So after you drink everything in here, she puts more water back in there and that water has to heat up again and you have to get the second cup. And then once you drink that, you have to put more water back in there. And that's the third time. And it's actually rude. If you walk out of there and don't get that third cup, that's the cup of blessing. It's offensive. If you don't sit there and drink three cups of coffee with this woman who pulls out this elaborate spread, you're offending her. And so if you had a meeting at 5 o'clock and you show up at 4, you're not going to make it. It's going to be two and a half to three hours. You kind of need to know that before you go into a new kingdom. Because things work differently over there. Now, why is that important? Last week, Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is here. And here's what he's saying. I know you're used to living one way. I know you're American, you're Mississippian, you're African-American, you're middle class, blah, 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 whatever. But I'm telling you, when you cross that threshold and you become my disciple, I don't care where you live, you live life according to my standards. You follow me, right? And here's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to go anywhere. You're going to be a foreign missionary right where you live. You're going to live life differently if you're going to be his disciple. And guess what he does? In the same way that these agencies have learned that you prepare people before they go full-fledged into a new land, Jesus is saying, look, I need to give you a crash course. I've announced that the kingdom of God is here. Now, let me give you a crash course on what it means to live in my kingdom under my rule right where you are. And so I think that's kind of the way that this passage is functioning, that he announces that the kingdom is here. And when you get to our passage, he's like, okay, let me show you what it means to be my follower. And here's what Jesus does. He gives us a new priority. He gives us new practices. And he exposes us to a new power. What's the new priority of the kingdom? And I want to be careful here to say a new priority and not the new priority because 
It's like moving into a new, I mean, you, you, you can't say this is the priority, but there are priorities in the kingdom of God. What is the one that he's emphasizing today? A new priority? Guess what? It's people. People matter in the kingdom of Christ. People. That's a new priority of the kingdom. Now, you see it in our passage all the way through the text, starting up in verse 16. It says, Jesus passes along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon, Peter, and Andrew, their, the brother of Simon, and they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And notice what Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, now this is like the fishing capital of the, the, that region. And here's what Jesus does. He walks up to fishermen and he says, look, brother, I know you out here throwing nets, but there is something more important than fish. It's people. It's something more important than your job. And it's people. It's something more important than food for your stomach. And it's people. Now, what Jesus isn't saying is everybody quit their jobs and go into ministry, right? He didn't call everybody who was fishing that day. He called those two and then these other two, but look behind the call and look at what he's saying. He's saying that, hey man, people matter to me. And it doesn't just stop there. He goes down a little farther and then he calls these two sons, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And Zebedee is a, probably a prominent wealthy man. Here's how we know. We know one because his name is repeated twice here. We also know because the dude had a boat. When he called Simon Peter and his brother, they were presumably on the shore throwing in a net. But these dudes got a boat. And not only do they have a boat, they got servants. So look at what Mark says in verse 18. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And so take this in, that, 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 that Jesus comes and he calls these two brothers even from their father. And in that culture, that was a big deal because you inherited the father's business, that your livelihood was tied into what the father had built. And so when Jesus comes and says, hey, you leave your father, you leave that profession, you leave everything he's built and left for you, and you too, you come follow me. Now, why would Jesus do that? It's because people matter and not just your parents and not just your father's business, and not just stability. People matter. And he leaves there, and notice where he goes. He goes into a synagogue. Why does he go to a synagogue on the Sabbath day? It's not to look at the furniture in the synagogue. It's not to look at the floors and the layout. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day because people are there waiting on a word from the Lord. And so he goes where the people are. And in the synagogue, there shows up a man who is possessed by a demon. And notice what Jesus does. He, he heals the man, which is really atypical in Jesus' day. We're going to get to it in Mark chapter 5. You want to know what they did to people who were demon-possessed? They chained them up and they put them out of community. We're going to read about a man who has demons who's chained up by a cemetery because no one wants to fool with him and see him. That's how we treat those people. Get them out of sight. They don't matter. Let me do my life right now. And here's what Jesus does. No, you come up and you be healed. Why? Because he cares that his people are not demon-possessed. But it doesn't stop there. Notice what happens next. He goes straight to Peter's house. And guess who is in Peter's house? And again, he's not going into Peter's house to look at the furniture. He's not looking at the countertops. He's not looking at the wood floors. He's not looking at the roof. He goes to Peter's house because Peter's mother-in-law is sick. That's why he goes. And here's what Jesus does. He moves to water. Now, do you know how women were viewed in Jesus' day? One scholar says this, that women were social half-caste. He says this is evident, first of all, in the layout of the temple. 
that you had the court of the Gentiles, then you had the court of women, then you had the holy place, and then you had the holiest of holies. Women could not go into the holy place. That was only for Jewish men. And so if you were a woman, you were one step above Gentiles, but you were not a Jewish man. As a matter of fact, we have evidence from 18 benedictions that, that rabbis would pray, and one of them was, Lord, thank you that you did not make me like a woman, right? That women were, in one sense, you couldn't touch them and hold their hands. And so what you see Mark doing in this passage and in the passage next week is he is showing that Jesus does not care about these man-made rules. He's going to touch a leper, which you're not supposed to do. And he's going to touch a woman, which you should not do. He's going to go into her house and to her. And no, guess what he did on the Sabbath day in the synagogue? He broke a man-made rule. You don't heal on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. And Jesus says, man, get that out of here. I'll touch a woman. I'll heal a woman. I'll teach a woman. I'll pastor a woman. I'll love a woman, and I will cast out a demon-possessed man on the Sabbath day, even though your rules in society tell me not to do that. You see what Jesus is doing? People matter. All people. Outcasts matter. Women matter. Men matter. You sick with a fever? You matter. Possessed by a demon? You matter. That's the point. In his kingdom, People are important. Now, C.S. Lewis, uh, I, I want to get to that here in a second, but isn't this how the book of, of Jonah ends? How does Jonah end? Nineveh, that great city, Nineveh, with 120,000 people who do not know their right hands from their left. What makes Nineveh great? It's not because it's the center of power for the Assyrian government. What makes it great is because there are people there who don't know me, and therefore, Jonah, you must go to them. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful quote in The Weight of Glory. Listen to what he says about people. It is a serious thing to live in a society with possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to right now may one day be a creature which, if you saw them in their glory, you would now be strongly tempted to bow down and worship them. He says, all day long, we are in some degree helping one another to one of two final destinations, heaven or hell. In light of these overwhelming possibilities, it, we must have awe and careful thought about every person we encounter, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never, ever, ever talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations and buildings, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You get that? C.S. Lewis says, look around this room and drive down the street and go into the projects, go up into the wealthiest part of this state, go wherever you want. You're not looking at mortal people. You're looking at people who will spend eternity in one place. And our treatment of them here and now is moving them in one of two eternal destinations. People matter more than your money, more than your cars, more than your houses. I don't care how beautiful your house is, it's in the trash heap and the new heavens and the new earth. I don't care what kind of car you drive, it's in the trash heap and the new heavens and the new earth. And to the degree that we use our homes and our possessions for the good of humans is the degree that God looks with us and is pleased with the stewardship thereof. So which angel did Jesus go on a cross for? It's 
humans, people, we tug at the very heart of God. We matter to him. All of us. He's laying this out. I'm not concerned with your view of the Sabbath. I'm not concerned with your, your living. I'm not concerned with how you view women. I am concerned with people. They matter in my kingdom. The second thing Jesus shows them are, are new practices of the kingdom. And I'll go ahead and give you these in case you want to sort of write them down. These new practices are time and, and how we view time and teaching and how we view the importance of teaching and touch. Touch is important in the kingdom of God. Time. What do I mean by time? You'll notice immediately is used six times in our passage. I'll read a few of them. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets. Go down to verse 20. 20 and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That phrase immediately is used in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue. It's used six times. Now, we got to split hairs here. I think three of those six times, we start to get a glimpse into the power of Christ. That when Christ says, follow me, they immediately follow him. When Christ says, demon, come out of the man, immediately the demon comes out of the man. In other words, I think three of those immediately's have to do with his authority and power, that it's a snap of a finger. And if he says it, it happens. And this ought to make sense to us, right? If we believe that everything was created by his powerful word, that when there was darkness, he spoke light and there was light, right? So I think what Mark is doing is showing us that, hey, man, this guy speaks and stuff happens. But I think three of these immediately are not showing his power. They're showing how he stewarded time. Now, why do I say that? Well, 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 look at it, right? They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. That isn't showing his power. That's showing that, hey, when, he, when the Sabbath day started, he went into the synagogue. He was the first one there, right? Look at verse 29. When his fame spread in all of Galilee, he immediately left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon. In other words, these immediately on the right, they're about how fast he is, right? He says, look, I'm not wasting my shot. I got three years to do ministry, and the clock is ticking. The day that I'm publicly baptized, I got three years before I'm strung up on a cross, and you know what I will not do with my life? I will not waste it. I will not be slothful. I will steward my time well. See, that's what's coming out of here. Can you imagine being a disciple and watching Jesus Bro, we like 10 minutes early. The synagogue don't open to 20 more minutes. Why are we here so early, right? Jesus, look at all the people here. You're famous. He's like, all right, I'm done here. We got to go somewhere else right now. Can you imagine them trying to keep up with Jesus? Like, dude, are you going to break? Take a break? Yeah, next week when it's, we'll get to it. I won't give it away. But next week he takes a break. But for this week, he's not breaking. He's working. And he being about his father's business. Now, why is this important? Because, you know, when I was, I think he knows, right, that there's, I'm going to be crucified. I got, I got three years to do and to get it all in. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do every single thing I'm called to do while I have breath. Why? He knows that time is fleeting. I used to hear it all the time growing up from my parents and other people. You blink your eye and your kids are grown. You blink your eye and your daughter's walking down the aisle. You blink your eye and your kids are going to college. And I used to be like, oh, man, whatever. That, man, it looked kind of slow to me. What you talking about, right? And I promise you, it feels like I was just married to my wife. It feels like we just moved to Jackson. And some of you were in the house painting and helping us move in. 
feels that like, man, where did the time go? We've been in Jackson for 14 years. You get it? Now, why is stewardship of time important in the kingdom of God? Because if you read the book of Proverbs, you know who, who he writes against? The sluggard. The sluggard comes up over and over and over in the book of Proverbs. He says, take your clue from the ant, you sluggard. Look at the ant. Look how hard the ant works in the summer. Why? Because the ant knows that winter is coming and there is no food out in the winter. And so while there is sunlight, sluggard, while you're in your bed, checking your iPhone, letting time pass you by, go look at the ant. He is out there getting it in. She is getting it in, right? It's a sluggard. Why do you roll over to your bed? You just roll over and sleep and then roll over again and sleep and you make excuses. Hey, there's a lion outside. If I go outside, something's going to happen to me. No, you're lazy. You get it? And so if Jesus shows up, don't we kind of believe that he's going to steward his time well and he's going to be the anti-sluggard? And that's what you see. I'm the prototypical man. I steward time well. I work, and I work, and I work. Now, here's why that's important. Because the God of this age wants anything, wants, he does not want you to see this. You do know that every time you pick up your phone and you get on social media and you click on something, Somebody somewhere is getting paid. They're getting paid for you to sit on that thing for hours. When we sit down and watch TV all day long, somebody is getting paid for us to sit there like a zombie, right? And here's what happens. We're being sluggards while the kingdom of God is just going right past us. And what Jesus says, if you're in my kingdom, a part of me, you're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow me. And your life needs to look like mine. You need to be about the Father's business. There ought to be a fire behind the people of God where we're anxious and excited to serve and worship the King. And so when he brings his first disciples in my kingdom, we go hard in the paint. We work hard. And next week we're going to see, and we rest well. And rest should come to those who work, right? If your habit is just to rest and to be lazy, that is not Sabbath. That is laziness. But you see the work. Let's be about the Father's business. Time is different in his kingdom. The next thing that's different is teaching. You'll notice that second section, verse 21 through 28, I know we kind of look at it and we see the demon possession and we think that that might be the center of it. But here's one thing that Mike Campbell taught us when he did the book of Mark several years ago. He said, look for the Markian sandwiches. And that's when Mark says something and then something's at the bottom and then there's something in the middle, right? And you just have to acknowledge what is the point of emphasis, right? That's what's in our text. Notice the emphasis. They went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was what? Y'all talk back to me. Teaching. And they were astonished at his what? For he did what? All right, so you got the teaching. Look at the bottom. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new what? Teaching. So you got teaching at the top and teaching at the bottom and you get this demon possession in the middle. Now, how do we interpret that? Here's the way I think we ought to interpret that. That Jesus shows up in the synagogue to teach. And as soon as he shows up, this demon possessed man shows up and starts to take attention away from the teaching. And Jesus says, hey, you shut up. You cannot talk right now. I have something to say, so you be quiet. You're interrupting my teaching. You get it? The demon possession was a distraction from teaching. Think about this. 
Jesus came and healed people, but he did not create a hospital. He came and fed people, but he did not start one grocery store. He came and did miracles, but he was not a traveling circus man. He came here and he preached and he taught the word of God with power and authority. In other words, he knows that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And therefore, we can say a lot of things about Jesus, but at the top on his list, he was a preacher and a teacher. You get it? And this is hard for us to hear because we would rather be entertained than be taught. Right? Think about who makes the most money in our society. We put our teachers at the lowest of the low, and I'm going to pay this dude over here $10 million a year to dribble a ball. Look, I love sports. I do. I promise you. I'm not pointing the finger. I'm just saying. (laughs) We're conditioned by that. We'll pay a coach $27 million, and this professor who's breaking bread off, they got to get two jobs to make ends meet. (laughs) You tell me what we want. We want to be entertained, but we don't want to learn and be taught. That's the God of this age. Entertain me, but keep me stupid. Right? On top of that, we care. Thank you, babe. We, on top of that, we care more about delivery than content. We've been kind of conditioned that a pastor, if you don't hoop enough or if you don't give me enough energy and gumption, I can't listen. I'm going to go to sleep, right? That is the God of this age that is blinding your mind and heart that's making you look at what is packaged and not what is coming out of the mouth of the person teaching I think if Jesus was here, he might, be, he might put some of us to sleep because his authority was not in eloquence. It was in truth. If you were here a few years ago when Annabelle prayed at our thanks, maybe it was our Christmas service, it was beautiful. I, I didn't plan on doing that. I said, hey, who want to pray? She says, I do. And if you were thinking it was about coming from the mouth of your pastor and you can't hear this truth, this little girl is just kind of spitting out, you will miss it if you're thinking about the package and not what's in it. That's the God of this age. And here is what Jesus says. Teaching matters. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. See, some of us, right, we want to be friends with our people but we will never teach them. Let me tell you how precious teaching is. This past week, I went to visit someone who lost a child recently. And I'm praying, like, Lord, what do I say to this person? They're hurting. And I walk in and we have a salad from Nukes and I sit across from them And I don't know what to say. And finally, I felt the Spirit say, you know what? Open your Bible, Doc, and read. That's what you do. And so this grieving, these grieving people are asking, like, what and why and how do I move on? And I can't believe this happened. And I'm like, man, I want to, you know. And so finally, I pull it out. First Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, and grieve as those who have no hope. And so notice right there what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 4, the key to grieving with hope is instruction. It's hearing from the Word of God. You want to know what happens to those who die in the Lord? They're with Him right now. You want to know what's going to happen when Jesus returns in glory and splendor and majesty? You will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They are with Him now. They will be changed in a moment, and you will get to witness it. Jesus is still on the throne, even in your grief. And at the end, the first Thessalonians 4, you know what Paul says? He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
In other words, in the midst of grief, you don't need a self-help book. In the midst of grief, you don't need wise words from a clever person. In the, in the midst of grief, what you need is thus saith the Lord. And that is what Jesus did. He was committed to it. Wherever he went, we will open up the scriptures and I will be a teacher and a preacher. And that is how you grow. It's the reason why in the early church, when you have widows who are being neglected for food, and you have the apostles who were devoted to teaching and preaching, you know what they said? They actually said, it is not for us to stop preaching and teaching to wait on tables. Now, he's not saying, hey, the widows don't need food, but he's saying, hey, we need two offices here. We need deacons who are going to take care of the material needs of God's people. And guess what? We will not sacrifice the teaching and preaching of God's Word. They go together. And therefore, in His kingdom, what we do here on Sunday mornings, I don't care who was in this pulpit, when they open this Word, God is there. That when you have devotions with your kids, I know they're squirming and wiggling and can't focus. God is there. When you have children's church, God is there. When you're in Sunday school, God is there. This is the vehicle by which God matures his people. It's through teaching the word. Teaching matters in his kingdom. Don't let the world tell you differently. The next thing that matters is touch. That what you see in that last section is after Jesus leaves the man with the unclean spirit, he goes into Simon Peter's home and Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter had a wife, and his wife and his mother-in-law were all living in the same house with Peter, and, 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 and Jesus goes there. But what you notice about the way that Jesus heals this woman, it's absolutely opposite from the way he healed the man. Up in the section prior to this, Jesus just spoke. He just spoke it, and the demon left. Notice what he did to Peter's mother-in-law. Look at what the text says. He came to her in verse 31 and took her by the hand and he lifted her up. After this, he's going to go and touch a leper. He got the power to make leprosy go just by saying it. He got the power to tell that woman to get up, but he chooses in this moment to do more than just say it. He chooses to go and touch her. You see it? Now, there's a guy. He's not a Christian. So if you read his stuff, read it carefully. Uh, he's a neuroscience professor at Johns Hopkins University. His name is David Linden. He did a TED Talk, which you can listen to, not kids, maybe parents. Uh, don't think he's a Christian. Matter of fact, I'm almost sure he's not a Christian. But his neuroscience stuff is like off the charts, good. And here's what he says. He says, touch is the most underexplored of our five senses. He says, for every 100 papers on vision, on cookbooks, on taste, he says, you get one paper on touch. We don't fully understand it. Now, he makes a jump, which I think is wrong. He makes the jump from this need for touch to evolution. And that's the wrong jump. I think this need for touch goes back somewhere else that I'll get to lately, right? Later. But here's what he writes. This is the good stuff. He says, the person can be born deaf, but they can have a great mind, a great body, a great life. A person can be born blind, and they can still have a great mind, a great body, a great life. He says, but a person born with the need for touch, if they don't get touch in the first two years of their lives, it is absolutely catastrophic. And he gives a case study. He says, we can study the orphanages in Romania, going all the way back to the 1970s and 1980s. And here's what he says. Here's what we noticed. The, the orphanages were overcrowded and understaffed. And as a result, a lot of babies, they were not handled. 
They were not held. They were not touched. They were given food and left in their crib, right? And he says, and, and here's what we learn, that they suffer. That their brain and the gray matter, that, that it's, it, 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 it's, it's real suffering. Their gastrointestinal parts of their body is underdeveloped. They're weaker. They're frailer. They're not as intelligent. And it's all brain development. And here's what we learned. We learned that the way to mitigate that is by getting volunteers. If I can get volunteers to go into the orphanage and spend 30 minutes a day, I don't need you to know about pedagogy and how to teach kids. All I need you to do is hold that baby and rock that baby and stroke the arm of that baby and kiss on that baby. Anybody can do this. Just go hold them. And here is what we learned, that if you got in there and intervened before they got to, to be two, everything went away. But if you did not reach them by two, the damage was irreparable. Touch is the social glue of humanity. They did another study on NBA players in 2008 and 2009, and they were testing their premise. If touch is this important, should teams who touch more have better outcomes on the court? And here's what they, they discovered. They, they, they surveyed 289 players, I think. They went back and watched every single, uh, the, the first quarter of the season for every game played in 2008 and 2009. And then they looked at who made it to the playoffs and who won the championship. And here is the correlation. The teams that got the high fives where dudes had a chest bump and high-fiving you shoot a free throw and dude coming up there and touching you where you got all your little handshakes. You know how they got now? Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. They got, all, they got like handshakes for every coach, handshakes for every player. Here's what they're saying. That touch, it affects the outcomes. You trust your players more. You have more confidence taking the last-minute shot. And if you're not open and your teammate has a better shot, then you're okay with passing your teammate the ball because the bond was solidified every time you miss a shot. All right, buddy, you got the next one. Every time you do something good and we're chest bumping. Why? Touch is at the very fabric of humanity. You ever been in an argument with somebody? And after y'all got over the argument, Y'all shook hands and dapped it up. That was more than getting close to one another. That touch is communicating something. It's communicating that we're good. You ever been in sin and you're found out and you're caught and you're in shame and somebody comes and hugs you and brings you near? Your kids have ever been sick and hurt something, and they come to you, Mama, can you kiss my boo-boo? Trust me, your kiss is not doing anything to the wound, but it is doing something in the brain. It's doing something up here. It's doing it right here. What is it communicating? I'm with you. I'm near. I'm for you, and I'm present. And so when Jesus goes into the room of this woman who was sick, he draws near, he touches her, and he picks her up. Where does this come from? It comes from the book of Genesis and not evolution. You see, this neuroscientist, he makes the wrong jump. We don't jump to evolution. We jump back to the Bible. And here is what we know from Genesis. When God spoke all things into existence, it happened. But do you want to know how he made humans? He did not speak you into existence. It says that he formed Adam from the ground. 
He formed him with his own hands, and then he breathed into him. He got all up into Adam's face and breathed into him, and he became a living being. That need for touch, it goes back to the Bible. And what you see happening in this passage is God drawing near and touching a sick woman. And I know touch is dangerous because you got pedophiles and those who abuse people. But they're able to do that because of an innate desire for touch and closeness. And that is why it's from the pit of hell. When you abuse what is good for evil and demonic purposes, therein lies the danger. But let us not throw away the need for human touch because you have evil people mistouching people. Here's what Jesus does. In my kingdom, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Get all up in each other's face and you hug. When you're sick at the hospital, come over here and come kiss me on my forehead. If I'm sick over here in the hospital dying of cancer and I'm weak, come hold my hand. Let me know that you're with me. Touch matters. And it makes sense. He goes and he touches the woman. You see how this works? Who are you teaching? Who's getting your time? And who are you proximate with enough to let them know that you're in this journey with them? That's the way we live in the kingdom. Now, here's a problem. I'm going to try to finish this up in two minutes. Jesus only has three years. At this point, he's going to go and die on a cross. How will these kingdom ethics carry on? Go look in the mirror. That's how the kingdom moves. He's going to die, but notice what he says. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's Jesus knows I got three years, but the kingdom of God is here, and the way that it moves and moves and moves and moves and grows and grows is when we follow him and we become like him. And therefore, it's risky. It's risky. Create an app. Make a machine. And a machine can do exactly what you needed to do, when you needed to do it, how you needed to do it. But God does not create machines. He does not entrust the kingdom to machines. He entrusts it to people like you and me who we're selfish. We wash our cars more than we pray for our neighbor. We vacuum our floors more than we get on our knees and pray for the kingdom of God to come, right? We care about possessions more than people. We keep people at a distance and want to come to church and do church for an hour and a half. And then we get mad if it goes longer than 90 minutes. And then we get out of here and don't want to see nobody no more for the rest of the week. And then we think we're going to come in here. We're going to keep it real. No, you're not. You're fake. Right? It's phony. And here's what Jesus is saying. Let's stop playing. Steward your time like the clock is ticking because it really is. Know people, love people, be in community because you really need it. Teach people because you might not be the most articulate person, but trust me, let the lion out of the cage, rightly divide the word of truth, and, I, and you watch what happens. So what would Jesus do? to turn these folks who are going to fumble and sin and not want to do it. I think the most important verse is in verse 17. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He says, I will do it. I'm going to do it. You follow me. You take your time and you watch me love people. 
and my infectious love for people, if your heart is softened by the gospel, it will seep in there and you will love people like me. I will take away your guilt and your shame and your selfishness on the cross and I will up you one. I will do more than take away your guilt. I will put my very own spirit in you. When Jesus was baptized in this passage before this one and the spirit of God dwelled on him, do not think that we're going to live the Christian life apart from the inner working of the spirit. Jesus did it. The spirit inside of you is a new power that will take selfish, sinful people and make us kingdom citizens. You want to know the fruit of this type of love, these type of priorities, these type of practices? Look at it. Verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region. Look at verse 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door that when Jesus invaded this world with a love for people and stewarding his time and teaching and drawing near to them. Do you want to know what happened? The people beat the door down because they saw something different. They beat the door down. You're giving us what we really need. Finally, I can't get enough of it. And that's our commission, family. If we live out these things by the power of the Spirit, it has no choice but to be appealing to a hurting, starving, craved world. This is his crash course of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for being faithful to your own self to feed us in such a mighty way. Bless us by your spirit that we might be doers and not only hearers of your word. Father, if there is something that has been uttered from my mouth that is not of you, may it fall upon deaf ears. But if it is of you, may your spirit take it and multiply it a millionfold. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.